Hello and welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is your host, James Kent, and with me, he's back, people. Teal. How's it going, man? Well, I don't know. How's it going with you? <laughs> well, <laughs> we got to uh, hear the whole see. story here. So I fell down the stairs. <laughs> yeah, we built it up on the last episode when Bill from Queens was here. We uh, told people that you took a bit of a spill and that uh, who knows what shape you were in or when you were going to return. I slipped on the top step and in the dark, in the middle of the night, coming out of the bathroom, and I sort of turned around in midair and stumbled down and uh, just landed. I, I basically flew uh, from the top of the stairs down about eight steps onto my back. And uh, I, I was in a lot of pain for about a week there. And these are not... Uh these weren't uh, carpeted stairs. No, 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 no. They're <laughs> they're slick hardwood stairs. <laughs> yep. Ouch. And <laughs> and as I was falling, you know, I was trying to grab onto the railing and trying to stop myself. Maybe I slowed myself down a little bit, but. And and so then you were like kind of bedridden for a little bit, right? I was bedridden for real. I mean, close to two weeks. So I'd imagine then, with you being in bed for two weeks, you had nothing but time to watch all sorts of movies, right? Well, <laughs> I will. It, I thought this might come up, <laughs> and so yes, I've been watching. Oh, you have been watching. I was kind of joking because I, I think that I was like at the beginning. You told me that like I haven't even watched anything. Well, I hadn't because, you know, I couldn't get down to watch stuff on the big screen. And there's certain movies you don't want to see on the small screen. Exactly. And if, so if you're uh, Schneider cutting it up, you, you want to watch that on the big screen. You want to watch the Snyder cut on the big screen. So I did watch some stuff on the small screen uh, with my daughter. I've been binging the Marvel movies on the small screen. <laughs> that, we're, we're now on the big screen. I oh, didn't oh, oh, okay, I got you. So which daughter is this, the oldest one or the youngest? The oldest one. So now she wants to catch up on these Marvel movies. Yeah, and we saw, you know, a couple of them in the theater. We saw Captain Marvel. We saw it's, it's, Endgame. Me, Captain Marvel. You're right, Captain <laughs> Marvel. We, we, so she'd seen a couple of them. Uh, she'd seen Guardians of the Galaxy, but she hadn't seen she hadn't seen any Iron Man or Captain America. And so we've been watching... Or Thor. We've been watching all of them. Now, are there any that you never saw as part of this? Or had you seen them all? I think I'd seen them all. There may be one or two. I, I'm trying to think now. Even that crappy sequel to Ant-Man? I did not see that. It's <laughs> one of the worst. I did not see that. So, it's been interesting watching them again. I'm not a huge fan of them, but uh, I've actually been enjoying them more than I thought I would. Well, yeah, once you just are like, hey, look, this is just a, you know, mindless entertainment. But wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Because we talked, I don't, you probably haven't heard the last episode that you were not on. No, yeah. Um, but uh, Bill and I, we talked about WandaVision a little bit. Uh, oh, didn't know okay. If now, are you, are you WandaVisioning it up now with a daughter? Well, she watched the whole series oh, on her own. Oh, she did. Yes, and this is part of what got her interested in watching the Marvel movie. This is the same thing that happened with my wife because she suddenly realized, well, I kind of like this, and now I got to go back. Yes, that's exactly what happened. So we've gone back, and we're making our way through them. We just watched uh, Captain America: Winter Soldier yesterday. Yeah, speaking of that, Bill was also talking about the new Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and I have not watched that. I have. You've ne you've watched Falcon and the Winter Soldier. 
I've watched the first two episodes, yeah. Oh, I, he didn't like that as nearly as much as he liked WandaVision. Well, I think it's a completely different type of show, right? I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen it. <laughs> well, it, it, it's just an action-adventure show. Oh, okay. And it has great special effects and great action scenes. They put a ton of money into it, but it's basically an action-adventure show. Well, that is the fascinating thing with these new streaming services is that content-wise, they may not be much different than some of these network shows that you used to Mm -hmm. get, but special effects-wise, it's like on par with a movie. Oh, this show absolutely is on par with the movie. It's amazing. Um, And that's what was still great about WandaVision is that it kind of felt in many ways like a Marvel movie because the special effects and the quality was, you know, right there. Yeah. And that's exactly what Falcon and the Winter Soldier feels like. It feels like, yeah, just another Marvel movie. I don't know how many episodes they're doing. I think... I think there's four out right now. I think this is kind of funny in that this is now the third episode in a row where comic book movies have taken a place on the (laughs) show after like dodging it for years. (laughs) Now we're going into that. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is I I was really thinking about this watching the Marvel films is that they're based on comic books, but they're really, they're superhero movies. Yeah. So Zack Snyder's Justice League. No, Did you finally see this? Yes, and I'm, t- I'm and I'm. Let's let's be clear. I'm talking Schneider cut. Oh, uh, yes. yes. Okay. So you finally got to watch this Justice League Snyder's cut. Yeah, and what I one distinction I have between that and the Marvel movies mm-hmm. is the Snyder cut is a comic book movie, hmm. and the Marvel movies are not comic book movies. They came, the source material is comic books, but they, they're they their own thing. Is your, but they're their own thing. They're, whereas what Snyder has done is really put a comic book with its framing, with its storytelling, uh, w- 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 the whole way it's done, it looks and feels like a comic book. Interesting. And the Marvel movies don't, which is fine. They're just a separate kind of thing. But... I've been reading some comics lately. That was another thing I did while I was bedridden. Hmm. Uh, so I read a bunch of comic books. That's one more than I've ever read in my whole life. <laughs> I'm not a comic book guy. I am not a big comic book guy either. Uh, but my kids are into them and they said, check this out. So I've okay. been checking checking some stuff out. And there, there's some really good stuff. But it was interesting to watch to read those at the same time that I was watching the Snyder Cut and realize just how much... Uh, his scenes mirror what goes on in comic books. Fascinating. Yeah, whereas the Marvel movies are, they don't look like comic books. No, I don't think that there's really any, I, I think that's to me one of my biggest knocks on it is stylistically, they're really devoid of interesting framing or, yeah. and that's why that to me, the number one reason that I would recommend people seeing the Snyder Cut for nothing else is that it's out of all the comic book movies I've seen over the years, it has probably got the strongest framing of any of them. Well, and that's really what it is. That's what makes it look and feel like a comic book. And whereas the Marvel movies are just like action adventure movies. After the Snyder Cut, I, I, I mentioned this on the last program too, is I went back and watched Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, the Snyder Cut. The Snyder Cut. How was that? Well, it's interesting in that 
framing wise, he wasn't allowed to do what he ended up doing in right. the Justice League. He had he shot a two three five, and he had to tone his color choices. He actually had to tone him up, I guess you would say. Is that oh, it couldn't okay. be as bleak as, say, Man of Steel, or you know how he has that weird aesthetic where it's almost like color drained. And yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Desaturates everything. And, yeah, yeah, and it has a very specific look, kind of like you know, he started like with Sucker Punch, right? Have you seen Sucker <laughs> right. Punch? Oh, I love Sucker Punch. And I, it's it's a combination of one of the worst movies ever made, but one of also a guilty pleasure because of the visuals. That's it's totally. I mean, there's no story, there's no characters, there's no, there's barely a script. Uh, but some of those sequences are just so fantastically fun and entertaining that the movie, yeah. It, when I said I love Sucker Punch, I don't mean like I actually think it's a good movie, I mean that I've watched it three times and enjoyed it every time, yeah. <laughs> and it's total guilty pleasure, but it's it, he does, he definitely. Uh, has the ability to do some incredible visual, audiovisual set pieces. Yeah. So my problems with Batman versus Superman, uh, it all came back to me. We watching this. Um, one, it, it's way more watchable in the three-hour version, though I could not tell you specifically what was different or what was added right. or what was taken away, kind of thing. But and I and again, I don't want to bore our listeners who heard this the last time, but it was the fact that. It starts out with him going back to the well of of reminding us of Batman's pain of losing his parents, right? And kind of going that whole route. It just felt kind of lazy, as in we we know this. There's ways that you could uh, dig into different aspects. I think that the history of Batman is cemented, and it could have been yeah. mentioned in a conversation rather than having a rehash. But. And again, some of it might be just having watched the Schneider cut of Justice League. Yeah, It ties into Justice League, and maybe it's because of this extended cut, a lot more than I knew it was going to. I was surprised, uh, including some of these visions that Batman has. In, yes, yes. And, and I don't know, I can't remember them, the, seeing it the first time around, but it, it does actually tie in and it makes the ending of the Schneider cut Justice League it's a little bit more okay i understand this a little bit better oh now. interesting yeah okay. yeah because i i'm th considering watching the batman versus superman and then i do want to and i think you watched some of it i i watched about 20 minutes of the black and white uh justice is gray uh black and white version of the snyder guy i watched a full hour of it Oh, nice. But then it's a, then I was also watching like the Batman versus Superman. And at some point I said, you know what? I've seen enough now. I am kind of <laughs> need a break from the Snyders because uh, my overall problem was that I felt like the storyline that he chose to go with all this, it's just depressing. And I'm not a, I'm not a fan of how he handled the whole Superman character and arc and where he looks like he would be taking that story. Yeah. Man of Steel is not a movie I really enjoyed. No. I, I think it uh, went too far into trying to make Superman a psychological character with emotional problems. Mm. And it's interesting. I just read uh, Grant Morrison as the writer, uh, his all-star Superman. I think that's uh, – Bill was talking about him, I think, on the last program. Yeah, he's, he's absolutely brilliant. But his all-star Superman, he does the entire origin story on the first page in, in four panels. And it's because we already know it. We don't need that. Like, yeah, I kind of, you know, it's funny. Even before I ever watched the Superman, you know, my dad used to watch the TV show. 
Um, oh, and, yeah. and it would be on when I was a kid. He, he'd watch it. And all you ever needed to know was, oh, he came from the planet Krypton and Krypton blew up. And you know what I mean? So uh, that's, yeah, that's really all you need. But uh, so anyways, I'm going to let you have any more you want to say on these uh, on these Justice Leagues or whatever before we move on to a new topic, because I'm myself tapped out. <laughs> I don't have a lot to say because uh, I'm not geeking out over this. But you enjoyed it more than you thought you were going to get when you got into it. Well, and the reason I enjoyed it is because it's so comic booky, and that it really felt like it was taking it, it. It felt like it was totally committed to being a comic book, and the performances are kind of over the top, or you know, like there's some hokiness that I felt like was a good thing. Well, you know, it's interesting that I will say that, look, I mean, he had a tragic event happen during yeah. this. But if you think about these battles that you have to have with a studio that clearly it, they hired you for whatever reason, but they never really liked your vision. Yeah. And so he was constantly fighting the changes. And at some point with all the tragedy happening in his real life, he's like, you know what? It's not worth it. And so yeah. he stepped away, but that gave the studio the chance to mucky about and do what they wanted and bring in the, that, that hack Josh Whedon. It shows you like how wrong a studio can be because if this version as four hours and all, if this had been released in the theaters or even in two parts, they probably would have made a ton of money. Yes. And it, they just shot themselves in the foot because it's, it's a fairly unique movie. It definitely doesn't feel like every other superhero movie. No. And I think that they probably would have been launching the, you know, his proposed uh, sequel idea too, yeah. because, uh, you know, and again, I don't know whether it's because of the pandemic or whatever, but we got to see this thing. And so that was interesting. And it just shows you that there are audiences who will watch a four hour movie. And it really yeah. did fly by for four hours. It was a totally enjoyable four hours. I, I didn't watch it in one sitting, but neither did I. And in a way, that's fine. We're used to watching things sort of broken up. Yeah, I wasn't so excited that I'm like, clear my schedule opening day. I want to watch four. I'm going to eat to midnight. No. But, you know, I mean, they could have done it in two parts or three parts. You know, they could have, because well, it's already in chapters. I kind of liked that, by the way. I loved the chapters. I thought it was great. But, you know, he even reshot little things, like some things that were said in the movie. He re-edited little tiny things that were manipulated in the Josh Whedon. So even if you were like... Well, I remember the scene, but it feels so much better now. Yeah. That's because he changed them. And so even sequences like when you get uh, Wonder Woman's entrance with that whole um, museum explosion-y thing. Yes. It is powerful and really gripping and enjoyable, even though we already saw that in the Justice League. Right. But it was all a matter of re-editing, re new music. Mm -hmm. Different aspect ratio, different color palette, and different sequences, and a couple of different moments. Th that's to me really fascinating from an editing standpoint. How you can yeah. completely change the intent, uh, and then also again, I thought the character was a little hokey, but was better this time. Was the Flash character much better? Much better this time. I don't understand how they didn't use that sequence of his introduction in the first movie because the that whole scene. With the car crash, yeah, was so unbelievably fantastic. Yes, yes. and it wasn't in the original movie. 
a Joss Whedon's a hack. Well, he's already now has his problems with, uh, you know, I mean, people have come out of the woodwork to say what a scumbag this guy is. And, uh, you know, again, whatever this movie that they did, I mean, that was an abomination. And this, at least, is far better. And I love the conclusion compared to what was originally given us uh, with, you know, the, the flash and the time going right. backwards, which, by the way, there's something that happens in Batman versus Superman that's part of, like, his whole, like... Oh, that ties into that? Yes. And I'm like, holy crap. We Basically, Snyder really had figured out stuff because the Flash comes to visit okay. him, and he warns him about something, but it makes no sense, and you have no idea who it is. But now, seeing the Snyder's cut, you realize that that's the Flash, and he's probably somehow broke through time barriers and was able to go back in time and warn him. So again, these things really do tie together in a way that they didn't when it was this other version. That's fascinating. Okay. So it's, I I kind of wish, I mean, uh, there's the three hour cut, but I kind of wish they would do the whole DC recut almost as like a mini series. And then cut out Aquaman altogether in his, in his own separate movie there. <laughs> oh, man. Well, he, I got to say, his performance in- Is better. Is better in, in Justice League than it is in that movie that I couldn't watch. Um, okay, so now the main crux of our program is uh, Criterion Channel is having its second anniversary a couple days ago. Yes. In fact, uh, two years running and they're going strong still. Thank God. Yeah, well, and they're doing great stuff. The difference between the Criterion Channel and all the other streaming services is? What? Oh, I thought you would be able to just guess. It's the curation. <laughs> yes, it's the curation. That, no, you're absolutely right. That is it. They do these collections. They organize by theme or director or actor. Uh, and so you feel like, yeah, there's a guiding hand helping you through uh the selections here. Yeah. There's no algorithm that says, Teal, we notice what you've watched. Maybe you'll consider right. this. Yeah, exactly. It, it has popular. It has, you know. So I recently got a little bit interested in Afrofuturism in music. Okay. George Clinton, you know, with the mothership. And so I was listening to George Clinton. And I was like, this Afrofuturism is kind of interesting. It's basically science fiction looking at uh or futurism or speculative fiction looking at african diaspora in the future and what their lives and culture is like and uh it's kind of interesting and so and then i was trying to track down i i just did some googling and found some films and i was trying to track them down and there what do i find on criterion but they have an afrofuturism collection well, yeah, they've been doing a special for the past few months on that. Yeah. Um, now, have you dived into that world yet? A little bit. I watched Space is the Place with Sun Ra. Okay. I don't know how to describe this movie. It's completely <laughs> insane. But if you're into the music, it's kind of like half music documentary, half half science fiction film, and then Sun Ra just kind of walking around and saying uh, things that are supposed to be profound or wise, um, but often just don't make any sense. And apparently he just made up all his dialogue for the movie, like on the spot. Anyhow, if you're into the music, it's kind of cool. There's some Terrence Nance stuff that I've been checking out a little bit. 
Okay, yeah, let's see. I started, and I really want to watch it, but it was such a terrible copy, is uh, Welcome to the Terror Dome. Uh, I had read about and it sounded interesting. I started watching it, and it looks like it was shot on VHS. Sometimes some of these offerings that the channel does aren't necessarily going to be the best prints. Well, and what's interesting is that I did watch also The Brother from Another Planet, which I hadn't seen since the 80s. I saw that in the theater at the Orson Welles Cinema in Cambridge with my mom. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was, yeah. We were into watching all these independent films. And what happens, like at the time when these movies would come out, you'd see the trailer for them when you went to see these other independent films. So that got us interested. And I don't remember a lot from the brother from another planet, except that uh, the the lead guy in that, he's- Joe Morton. Yeah, he's of course in uh, the Justice League. He plays uh, Cyborg's dad. And- there's this scene where he's on the train and a very young Fisher Stevens is a guy, a, a sort of street performer yes. on the train who does this awesome card trick. And yes, yes. It always stuck in my head for years after that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, a lot of the movie had sort of stuck in my head, but mostly what I remembered, which is most of the film, is just Joe Joe Morton's face when he's taking in this world that he's arrived he feels like an alien for sure he feels like an alien yeah and it's all done with i mean there's i guess some special effects not really but what's interesting is that at the beginning of this film it has a little some title cards about the restoration okay uh but the film does not look restored it's like they restored it in the 90s it's like they they did a preservation on film not on digital one of the collections that Criterion offers, and we talked about this last week just briefly because it was the first film I got to watch of this collection was Machine Gun McCain, is that they are doing a retrospective on composer Ennio Morricone. Yes. And they weren't picking all, like some, there's a couple of films in the collection that I've, that I've seen. They're well known, like Days of Heaven and The right. Mission, great scores, but there's a ton of other movies that are much rarer and they don't pop up any, you're not going to really find them on your typical streaming platforms. And some of them I had, I'm like, I don't even know what this is. Some of them. Yes. Uh, many of them I'd never heard of, yeah. but there's a barrage of various things, mostly Italian or Italian dubbed, like, uh, you know, these imports, they were, there were like some thrillers, some, 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 some Jallo movies, uh, a, a lot of Westerns. And of course, Ian Morricone was, synonymous with the spaghetti western and his work yes. with sergio leone in fistful of dollars a few dollars more once upon a time in the west the good the bad and the ugly and one of the films uh, his last western that he did with sergio leone and, and leone's last western was duck you sucker or sometimes known as fistful of dynamite yeah I, okay that's funny i knew it is fistful of dynamite now it's called you know that's another thing these italian movies would sometimes have a bunch of different names and so duck you sucker uh, I also watched because of because of the Sergio Leone thing, and, yeah. and also I have this double uh, vinyl album of Morricone scores, and oh. a bunch of these movies have shown up there. But I had no idea what the movies were, but I'm familiar with the music, so I kind of right, wanted right. to oh, see. Oh, that's cool! Yeah. I'm like, I got to see what these movies are. I I did watch Machine Gun McCain, which I, you know what, Teal. Not that you always have a bag of time, but 
you know, John Cassavetes, you might want to take a peek at it. Okay. Yeah. No, you didn't, you said you would watch it, but uh, you hadn't said whether it was, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> whether it needed to be watched or not, you know, sometimes. Uh, that's well, so that's the beauty of this criterion is there, they put this collection together and it's fun to go on a theme that the only thing that necessarily ties all these films together. Maybe yeah. it's an actor, maybe it's a director, but here it's a composer and you really get to see some of the genius of Ennio Morricone just because nobody did scores like this uh use the instruments that he did and the sounds he brings are so different than anything you know everyone's used to like the John Williams style exactly score. this is you know there's stuff you you do pick up there's like notes I hear I hear notes of um of the untouchables in some of this earlier stuff yes yeah and, but that's okay I mean but you're getting well, well, Sure, but sometimes the, the just the sounds. I don't even know what instruments he's using. Exactly. I'm like, what the hell? And he, he, he like, if you watch anything about him, he like or read up on him, he he gets these ideas, and he would go to really great lengths to come up with some weird, weird instrumentations. Yeah, and it sounds it's it, when it fits, and the thing is, most of the time it does fit. Absolutely, or sometimes it doesn't, and it makes you go, well, you know what. In in Italy, definitely, there's a different different approach to genres than we would have. Yeah, uh, but but it's again, it's unmistakable, and it really adds a lot of elements. Um, but when you have that, and you combined watching films where you have to get something out of the filmmaking style because you're not going to necessarily get it from the acting because of the whole dubbing thing. Right. Uh, I dived into these things and I dived into what you just said, uh, death rides a horse. And the reason why yeah. I did, I don't know who, uh, Giulio Petroni, the director is. I don't know. I was intrigued by it for a couple of reasons. Well, Ennio Morricone did the score. Yes. Lee Van Cleef plays this guy, Ryan. And I love Lee as a kid. For some reason, I love Lee Van Cleef. Yeah. He's really interesting to look at. He's charming. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, before we get into this, this movie came out in 1967. They probably shot it in 66. Yeah. And I don't think it got released in the United States right away either. Let's just say it was made in 66. Okay. Yeah. How old was Lee Van Cleef in 1966? Do you know? 41. Yes. I look, believe me, I, that's the thing is when you get in these movies, I start diving into stuff. And then John Philip Law, which is funny, is that this guy, right, he spent like, I don't know, he spent decades in Italy because he has so many yeah. films that he's he performs in. Uh, and he was like, you know, he played a spy in what, Danger Diabolique. Uh, he plays a hippie in that other movie that uh, we're going to talk about at some point in the future, uh, Skidoo. <laughs> Skidoo. He's in Barbarella also. He's in he? Barbarella. Uh, so, so I met him. You what? You got to meet John Philip Law? The guy's a legend. He's, I, he's dead now, but I auditioned him. No way. Yeah. He's got great eyes. And oh, he's got great eyes. I was very excited that he was coming in to audition. He came in and he looked at the camera and he said, You want to raise the camera up a little bit? If there's one thing I've learned in this business is that if they want to make you look evil, they put the camera down too low. Now, 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 when 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 he said this, right? Was there somebody else that was actually doing the voice? Yes, yes. <laughs> he brought in his own voiceover guy. He had a little. You no, know, he had a little tape recorder. Um, apparently, this is like a line he liked to use about camera height. <laughs> but I just thought it was hysterical that, like, you know, it, it, people who've 
been around on sets a lot and stuff do have their they want to assert that they know what's going on and so he was uh, it was just a little power move on his part so this death rides a horse right uh so uh, like i'm like just taking a chance and then i read like i like it was an influence on tarantino which i know a lot of these yeah. uh spaghetti westerns are um on on kill bill right and i'm watching this movie and i was kind of blown away by it because i, I don't have a lot of experience watching spaghetti westerns i watched right. a few as a kid but they were always they're all shot like two three five because they were shot in this crappy format to save money technoscope okay and technoscope was is they basically um it's called two perf 35 so if you have a, a frame of 35 millimeter there's four perfs on each side right and what they did was to to sort of imitate uh uh panavision instead of having the the lens squeeze the image onto a right. full frame and squeeze it out. They shot two perf. So they actually got oh. two frames out of one frame. Oh, So yeah, if you think that, about it, it's, it's not going to be when it's blown up. It's a little grainier. It's not as good quality. It's but almost, clo it's closer to 16 millimeter. It's closer to 16 millimeter, but you get that wide screen and it costs a lot less because you're using half of the film half as much film yeah and if you watch these movies one of the things you'll notice on every single one of these spaghetti westerns that are on criterion they're all shot in technoscope interesting okay that's fascinating and yeah. that was also how american graffiti was shot by the way did not know that yep and also um two lane blacktop okay so a lot of these films that was kind of popular for about good, good right. like 65 to 75 it was very popular to do it that way because you could get a kind of it's cheaper yeah right the widescreen look but at a cost um so i'm watching this thing and you know so different oh, the, all the westerns that were done in the United States for U.S. audiences. It was always, it was cowboys and Indians. It was cowboys and Indians and heroes. Yep. And it was reshaping the idea that somehow Manifest Destiny was the right way to go. Right. And so it was very, like, so the Indians were always the bad guys. And then the Indians always, were always the bad guys. Yeah. And there was always this bad gang versus a good law abiding citizen. And I, and I actually just watched uh, Tombstone. It was a good reminder of that approach because my son is into westerns he, yeah it's shocking but he's so into westerns that it's giving me a chance to like revisit a genre that was never my favorite right but the, so these the, what, what, and what's so fascinating about these spaghetti westerns is they are interested in a whole different thing that's absolutely right yeah they're not deconstructing the american myth or even just uh, reifying the American myth, yeah. Especially Duck, You Sucker, and then there's other ones on this, is a lot of them are involved in the Mexican Revolution. And the Mexican Revolution kind of as a stand-in for the revolutions that were going on during like World War II right. and that whole period in Italy. And so there were ways to comment on like destruction and kind of the the senselessness of war right and and you know again also as part of this mostly because of my son kind of companion but it's not on criterion but i watched the good the bad and the ugly and you know again forget the fact that these are far more interesting western stories right than we than i was used to seeing is that there's this filmmaking style uh there are some sequences in death rides a horse that are just so fantastic. Such as? 
uh, well, I, I, I totally agree. I just I'm like, well, well I, well, you, well, you saw, I was waiting for you to be like, oh my God. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, just the way it opens. So this is where, again, Tarantino, there's a whole revenge aspect to this movie. Right. So it opens with this family. Yeah. And that whole sequence, which is, you know, especially for 1966 standards was very brutal. I mean, this, it's, it's, in, it, it is brutal. It was, it's it, even by today's standards. Yeah. Uh, this little boy sees his whole family, like, like raped and murdered and, yeah. He remembers, and this is such a crime. I just love it. There's the way that the camera used these zoom lenses. Yes, and it zooms in. Each each uh, uh, offender in this scene has some little thing, a tattoo or an, a earring, scar, an earring or a scar. Yeah, something that identifies them that he carries with him. And he basically dev devotes his life to this revenge. Well, that's the best thing. It goes from this awful scene where he's the only one left alive from this massacre. And then it jump cuts to him. And you know it's him. It's John Philip yes. Law now yes. as an adult doing like he's like an insane marksman. Mm -hmm. And he is just practicing and all he's been set on is revenge. And as part of one of these themes that was very popular with the spaghetti Westerns, uh, and I really, really enjoyed it, is they called them, it's sort of like the the mentor student movie. Mm -hmm. uh, and Lee Van Cleef just gets out of prison. And basically, he has interest in getting revenge on the same gang that John Villop Law wants to get revenge on. Yeah. But Lee Van Cleef, he's been around the block and he's there to constantly show john philip law the ropes yes uh well <laughs> yeah yes he i guess he's showing him the ropes but it's it's this play between these two characters for me is what makes this film really unique that it's not just a straight revenge tale that the way their relationship this father-son kind of relationship builds over the course of the film uh to kind of the final realization is it's it's really interesting and it's charming and it's kind of funny and i think it has a great i mean i loved the ending of the film too it, it, it the really ending is brilliant yeah and of course it has a great score by Ennio morricone yes but here's another fascinating thing as i started to watch uh, in a very short succession all of these spaghetti westerns there's i don't want to say a trope but there's a thing that happens in all of them but it is very engaging but it's obviously it's a theme that they do in these movies uh and it's so i watched the first one death rides a horse yeah. and of course it seems very original and cool and then you suddenly see it in all these other movies is that lee van cleef and john philip law are constantly getting each other out of a scrap but yes. then abandoning the other one Yes, exactly. And then the other one catches up just in time to save them. Save them and then abandons them again. And, well, yeah. this happens constantly in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. <laughs> and in Duck, You Sucker, it's exactly the same whole deal where Rod Steiger plays this Mexican guy, Juan Miranda. And he uh -huh. does, And I'm pretty sure that Al Pacino got his whole accent for Scarface <laughs> from Rod Steiger's really bad portrayal of a Mexican guy, Juan Miranda. Oh, man. <laughs> and then James Coburn is an, an ex-IRA explosive expert. John Mallory with one of the worst <laughs> Irish accents you're ever going to hear. And they are guys that are mixed up where James Coburn has left one revolution in Ireland for kind of being a soldier of fortune, maybe kind of in oh, the Mexican man. revolution. And Rod Steiger. Is this, movie, is this movie as funny as the description? Oh my, well, no, it, 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 it's Ennio Morricone though. And so that right. means there is some just 
amazing, amazing sequences, and it also has an amazing ending, and there's some powerful stuff that is only in the mind of Sergio Leone. This is a guy who hardly made any movies. Yeah. I don't think, I think because he was so exacting that that studios didn't want to work with him, so a lot of times he just preferred to write the screenplay and not make the movie. Oh, okay, right. He And he didn't want to make this one, but Rod Steiger said, I'm not going to do it with anybody else. It, like, he has to actually direct it or I'm not going to do it. Okay. And there are some sequences, and when you, you're going to watch this movie, and then we're going to talk about it, because I can't really tell you some things that I just thought were so right. interesting, but how Leone handles a camera and movement and he does this thing with the good, the bad, the ugly, which, you know what? I watch as a kid on like, you know, cut up on channel 56 and it was pan and scan and it was like whatever short. That's my memory of it. Oh my God. I saw like whatever shortened version of the film. It's like a three hour movie, but I only yeah. saw like the two hour and 25 minute and it is an epic. Wow. It okay. is really good. I mean, there's so many. And so when I'm watching these, especially when I watch like, like Duck You Sucker, the right. story is prime where like someone like Tarantino with his sense of dialogue, he should like, since he loves to reinvent these movies anyway, he should go and take the bones of that and turn it into something else. Cause it's really a good movie. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. I mean, he's kind of done that with some of these movies though, right? I mean, well, some of it, but I, it makes me appreciate what he did with, um, with hateful eight and what he did with Django unchained is he just basically, he, he realized nobody is like, there's a whole wealth of these awesome stories yeah. and nobody is like bothered to remake them. And I don't know why. And so he's like, well, I'll take what I want and make my own new thing. <laughs> make my own out of it. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a scene, there's this thing where when he, uh, when John Philip Law in Death Rides a Horse, when he comes across these people who destroyed his family yeah, and he sees and he recognizes them. They do this whole like flash of red. Yes. And it's right. And, and Tarantino lifted that whole thing from kill bill. Yes. And so I was really fascinated to see the movies that he was so influenced by. Well, yeah, because the other one I watched uh, was lady Snowblood, And I told you to watch that because I was shocked at how much he lifted from that movie yes. for the Kill Bill, including some of the music and stuff. It, you can kind of combine those two movies and end up with uh, Kill Bill. Yeah, and, and, and in fairness, then his, there's some old stuff that is just strictly Tarantino as well. Well, but. sure, and also, I mean, it, like there's some there's stuff from Death Rides a Horse, but it's also it's a subgenre. It's a revenge movie. Yes, and so he's pulling actually from Tarantino is a lot of different revenge movies. A absolutely. And it's a subgenre where I feel like there actually is a lot that can be done inside it. Yeah. Whereas some other subgenres, I don't know if we'll get into that today, but I'm thinking of quitting a subgenre. You're thinking of what? Quitting a subgenre. I don't know if I can handle it anymore. Which one is that? The Time Loop movie. Oh, you're finally quitting Time Loop movies. Something, yes. What was the one that killed it for you? Boss Level. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah, that would kill it for me too. Um, well, let's see. Anything gets overdone to death. Yeah. My point is, I don't feel like there's actually that much that you can do within the time loop movie. I, I, uh, you know, you can make it a comedy, you can make it a thriller, but ultimately they just. <laughs> they're sort of treading their wheels. Well, the last one that, that offered me anything unique and good that I really enjoyed was Palm Springs. Oh, I totally enjoyed Palm Springs. Oh, you finally saw same, that? Yeah, yeah. 
I saw it and uh, I totally enjoyed it. But at the same time, I was like, I pretty much know exactly what's going to happen here. So we don't have to spin off into the time loop thing. I, I, I was both basically bringing it up to make my point that some subgenres really have a lot of space for the the author to be uh, creative and innovative and resourceful within it, and I some subgenres don't have the same uh, flexibility. I think I love Death Rides a Horse, and then Duck You Sucker. Man, there's it, it. It does have a little bit of like silliness that mm -hmm. seems to come with these movies, but there is some profound stuff in this movie. And the end of this movie, I want to talk to you about when okay. you've seen it because it's really good. It's long. It's like a two hour and thirty seven minute movie. Yeah, um, which is fascinating. That again, they used to be so cut up on TV that I didn't realize these movies were really like Western epics. Right. Yeah, well, and they probably are very cut up on TV. Yeah. Here's another interesting thing is that when you focus on just a composer, there's a whole bunch of different genres that get mixed in. Right, right, right. And of course, like I said, you know, Ennio Morricone, he didn't speak English. He, he knew a few words, but that was basically right. it. So he's, he obviously did tons and tons of things in Italy. And another film that I watched from this collection, there's like 23 movies, and I've only seen a few of the ones. Like I said, I saw, you know, I've seen uh, The Mission, and of course I've seen Days of Heaven. Days of Heaven many times. Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down. Tie I've Me seen. Up, Tie Me Down, yes. Um, not in years, but I, I have seen that. So there's this thing called uh, Nighttime Train Murders, which was the original title, but it was also known as Last Stop on the Night Train. Okay. From 1975. And I guess why I was intrigued by it was that it's an Italian version of Last House on the Left and The Virgin Spring, which for those who don't know, Last House on the Left is actually a remake of Ingmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring. Right. And what I was struck by of this movie, Nighttime Train Murders, is Actually, that it's just Night Train Murders. Night. It's just Night Train Murders? Yeah. I thought it was nighttime train murders, no? No, night train murders. Well, sorry. Um, I'm looking at Criterion right now. I so see it. It takes place, it starts like I think in Germany, and it's going to be uh, these two girls, they're like college roommates, are going to go home to the other one of the girls' house in Italy for a good old fashioned Italian Christmas. And they're going to take a train. And. So all the action that happens, like in Last House on the Left, yeah. the girls are going to a concert and they meet these people, it happens on the train. And there's these two thugs okay. that are like kind of mugging people and stuff on the streets in Germany, but they get on the plane, to, uh, to get on the train to like avoid, you know, capture from the police. And, but how this film gets these two to focus on the girl, I thought was very smart. And then there's this third character, this actress, Masha Merrill. She was a French woman uh, actress who's in tons and tons of movies. Um, and it also features this- And it doesn't matter if she speaks Italian because they can just dub her. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Well, she was, dubbed, she was dubbed speaking, I think it was actually her own voice. It's all dubbed in English. Oh, it's all, right, okay. But she was the yeah. international star, right? And then they had this Italian guy, Enrico uh, Maria Salerno, and he looks just like Herbert Lom, okay. the Inspector Dreyfus from uh, you know the Pink Panther movies. And it's really funny because he shows up in another 
Italian movie that I watched after this. Uh, uh-huh. And I'm like, hey, this guy looks like, like Herbert Long. I'm like, why haven't I seen, oh, he was in that Night Train Murders <laughs> movie too. I'm like, and he plays the doctor of one of the, the daughter, uh, the, the father who's a doctor. And that's part of the whole thing is that the guy's like a surgeon or whatever. Oh, um, okay. So this woman, this French woman, she joined, she has got like some sexual obsession. And I forgot there was a female character that's also part of the gang of thugs in these uh, movies like Last House in the Lab and Virgin of Spring. Right, right, right. So she gets on the train too. And so she actually helps instigate the stuff that happens to the girls. Um, and that whole sequence is so unnerving uh, and so well done. And unlike other like horror schlock movies where like say the girls who are going to become victims do maybe stupid things that end up making it so that the bad things happen. Right, right. These girls try to do everything right. Oh, interesting. And they're smart about it and they're- They're they're smart. They seem to know bad things are up with these and they try to get onto like a different train because of like other things. And it unfortunately, like it just, it just puts that sense of dread that these two are real victims that there's nothing they could do in the situation. Um, And so it's, it's really unpleasant to watch like, like Last House in the Lap in a Virgin Spring, but it's really well done. And then unfortunately at the very end- kind of conclusion of it it almost feels like they were running out of time or something but it kind of wraps up in a way that i didn't really care for the big, okay. the big climax just doesn't pay off the rest of the movie as well that's too bad okay yeah i think that's what because i was thinking about watching it and then you said that and i was like eh, it's not it's not at the top of my list i got some other ones i want to get to that, that's true and it's fine if you end up seeing different ones than me but i mean I, i'm going to watch any that i'm interested in and if it's not that good Eh. And then the other one that I really have seen and that I really, really were waiting like years to watch was Dario Argento's very first film, which is The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. And I have seen it several times, but not in a long time. But have you ever seen it in its full widescreen? No. Probably not, right? No. You probably saw it on VHS or something. Yes. Uh, Composition-wise, right? It Not only it's his first film, but it was the first color movie to be shot by Vittorio Storaro. Oh, fascinating. And man, there are some sequences in this movie that are so well shot. And especially the first big murder that kind of kicks off. Yeah, and Argento always has amazing use of color. The color, of course. And so this is actually considered the very first official Giallo movie. Yeah, he invented the genre. And I don't know if you know the story by this, but it's it's kind of, again, I don't know how much of this is rumor or, or, or truth, but... It was one of those sequences. Uh, he was a first-time director, and some of the footage coming out at first, the the studio wasn't very happy with, and they were calling him in. They were going to fire him. Oh wow! They didn't like it, and probably because it was so different, right? Yeah, you know? yeah. And from what they were even expecting, so his dad, Dario Argento's dad. I'm going to go talk to them. Like, I don't know who his father was. He shows up to the offices and he goes and the secretary's there. And they're like, well, who are you? And he's like, oh, I'm like, whatever Argento is like, well, who are you? And he's like, well, I'm the dad of Dario. And he's directing this movie. Right. <laughs> and he's describing what it is about. And then the, the secretary had this look of terror on her face. And he's like, what's wrong? It's like, that movie's so scary. <laughs> She's like, I see parts. She's like, it's, it's gave me nightmares. And he said, will you go in and tell your boss that? <laughs> and so she went in and said how scared she was of the movie. And that saved the guy's job. <laughs> I don't know 
know how much of that's true, but I love that story. <laughs> that's that's uh, it's true and it, well. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. It's true enough. I'll, I'll take it as true. So you probably haven't seen the movie in years. And so you yeah. may or may not remember, but you know, it, it starts off with this, uh, it, and this is the way all those Jalo movies kind of do. There's the innocent bystander. Right. And this uh, American actor, Tony Misante, um, he, you know, he was never a big actor, but he, he was in this TV show called Toma. about a detective. And he is I don't know why he's even in Italy, right? He's like maybe a student or something studying right. with his uh, British uh, girlfriend, Susie Kendall, and uh, who's dubbed terribly in the movie. <laughs> By herself? Maybe. Or? It didn't sound like her because I knew who this actress was, but, but maybe it was one of those things where, again, they, she, they had her in a studio just line reading afterwards because uh, it just the, – the, inflection of the acting just didn't match up with the performance <laughs> it's just kind of funny <laughs> so it's it, it is uh, 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 you mentioned this right off the bat but it is sometimes hard to watch these movies because of that it's sort of like reading subtitles you just have to get used to it and well, it now takes, that i've seen so many i'm kind of in that groove yeah but you kind of have to yeah you got to be in the right mindset for it i mean my wife and i were we were having fun watching this and we were kind of like making some funny jokes um, and part of that, I don't think you'd make those funny jokes if the voices matched up better. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, so there's this thing where he passes by this art gallery and there's this whole uh, installation happening and he, he witnesses this murder. He tries to step forward and stop the murder from happening. And okay. yeah, the yeah, way yeah. it's composed, it's sh like there's this two, three, five frame. It's like, it's just, it's like you're in the rectangle box and you're seeing him and then he's in this sort of like there's like a glass in front of him and he can't get to them and then the glass behind him shuts and locks him in and so he's like he's yeah, there yeah, yeah. he's there part of like the the murder but he cannot get to the other side and as a viewer you are watching yeah 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 you're seeing you're seeing the murder from a distance you're seeing him watching the murder you see him totally captured in this box and so you have all these different planes that you are like watching action unfold and then it reverse shots and you see like you're in the gallery and you see him trapped in the glass and then you see what's like in the background on the street and then you see him trying to like signal somebody to like get help it's just it's such a fantastic way to shot something so visually inventive yeah and this whole film is filled with these beautiful widescreen compositions um and then there's a sequence toward the end where he's it's at nighttime and he's been following like you think that the murder has been solved but there's like an extra part going on and he has to go through like these darkened like uh parts of a building and it's all dark but way in the background there's like this opening of a doorway and that's all lit and it's just enough light to kind of give the outline of his character as he's moving around. Oh, and I'm wow. like, who had the confidence to shoot something like this? This is all like yeah. him and Vittorio Storaro doing crazy things. To shoot something that dark, right? Where you can you can just see movement. I'm totally watching this again. I mean, I was such an Argento fan uh, as a teenager. Plus, the score is awesome because... I think that, again, Ennio Morricone kicked off these things that a lot of people would do, you know, like in this or like sort of in the 70s. Uh, and one one composer in particular was fond of this, this guy, Michael Small. It was that, uh, you know, that there's like sort of like these women. Okay. 
Yeah, 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 yes. Uh, yeah. Bird with the crystal plumage is really where that starts. Uh, this is oh, Neil Morricone. You gotta gotta hear this score. So I'm totally well, well this is one I'm super excited to watch. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed watching it. And this is the one that the inspector in the movie is this guy, Un- Enrico Maria Salerno. He looks like Herbert Lom, and he was oh. also in the night train murders. <laughs> <laughs> and he has this weird little mustache right above his lip. And I'm like, who has a mustache like that? Um, but so it's like now you're seeing these movies i'm like recognizing all of these weird italian characters yeah um so it's just been a lot of fun and like i said i wouldn't be like if any of these things showed up on like amazon prime or netflix i would have to search them and i'd probably skip them and the curation is essentially like i feel like there aren't really that many bad movies on criterion like the ones that aren't good are at least interesting Speaking of like, you know, genres and stuff, there's sometimes they just maybe feature a film on their on their home screen. Yes. And because of the image they pick, I get intrigued by it. Yes. And so like they're doing like this thing on uh, Dirk Bogard. And and since we'd already seen him in a few of those Robert, you know, those Joseph Lossie movies. Right, right, right. Ah. I was like intrigued in this one that they had kind of showed an image from cast a dark shadow and it was only like an hour and 20 minutes. So I'm like, I can do that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, And it was definitely a noir um, and it's ending wasn't very strong, uh, but it draws you in at the right beginning. If you don't even get to watch this movie, go watch the first five minutes of this film. Okay. It's only an hour and 20 minutes. I'll probably try. Well, it takes place the first Five minutes of the movie with the credits takes place inside a carnival funhouse. Oh, cool. See the, just watch the compositions and the cinematography in that opening five minutes. Okay. And then there's also a performance that comes in in about 25 minutes. It's this woman named Margaret Lockwood, this actress. Okay. And she is so interesting in a way that that movie Detour Right, right, right. Yes. Had okay. a character so, actress that comes in that you're not expecting the character to be like that. And and takes over the movie, basically. She does. And so, like, this Dirk Bogard is, like, a guy who's basically a gold digger. Okay. And she is his she's next. She's the target. She's his next target. And she she definitely has a few tricks up her sleeve, I'd say. Okay, interesting. Um, so, then, so, like, you know, I'm never, like, uh, I'm never sort of fully uh, – removed from watching these noir films that criterion keeps offering up over the years yeah so i re- I, I had the same thing i was attracted by the thumbnail the thumbnail oh, yeah. oh, oh, oh the th- i'm like what movie is that oh you're talking about the thumbnail on the criterion <laughs> yeah film. the criterion yeah i don't think somehow they pick really good thumbnails no i think they specifically it's part of their curation they, they're yeah. drawing you in with this intrigue so that you look at a film that maybe you've heard the title before but you're like eh but now I'm like, I got to see it. Look at this. Yeah. So I this movie, Gun Crazy, I uh, it's part of their Lovers on the Run subgenre collection. Yeah. They have this whole thing called like Lovers on the Run, which I'd seen a bunch of the films. And I'm actually in the middle of one of those that you said, you'd said, have I ever seen it before? I'm not too into it. So I haven't gone back to it, but Ain't Them Body Saints. Oh, yeah. I like David Lowry. I like the direction of that movie. I'm not... It's a little bit like Terrence Malick light. Right. And of course, Badlands is part of this collection as well. Yes. Um, which I love. Again, it's great to be able to say here, here's like five movies that 
may be from different directors, may be from different decades, but what does it, what pulls it together? You're going to get to watch five films about lovers on the run and how they're handled. Yeah. And I, I guess I had just skipped that gun crazy. He's like, oh, I don't even know what that is. I know the name, the title is very, very famous. Yeah. But then you said, I watched this gun crazy movie and I said, well, you know what? Again, it's only an hour and 25 minutes. Maybe if I can watch it before the show, we can talk about it. And so you, so you, you picked gun crazy to watch. And then what were your thoughts on that? I mean, I'd heard the title and I picked it basically off this shot, uh, this, this thumbnail. And I, I, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a subgenre. You know, pretty much what you're going to get with lovers on the run. Right. Uh, there's not a lot of surprises in the story necessarily. And, but I feel like this one, uh, it's 1950 and, you know, they have two movies earlier than this, but I feel like this one is incredibly influential. Well, it's very influential as it surprisingly turns out, uh, it, it very uh, 17 years before a precursor to Bonnie and Clyde. Exactly. Yes. And it's, it, it basically is sort of the prototype for the subgenre. Like if you were going to, if you were going to ask me, what is the one movie that sums it all up? It's the, it's gun crazy. I looked it up in the middle of watching the movie because there's this one shot. It's funny because you didn't tell me about this. You told me nothing about it. I didn't want you to know anything about it. I, I was going to tell you about the shot, but, it, but I had no, such a great- didn't. I, I had such a great experience watching it the first time. Because when the shot was over, it tricks you. Because I'm like, wait a minute, is that was that just one shot? And then I had to stop, stop, and I looked it up too. Because I like, stopped and looked it up because it was so such an amazing shot. And because uh, I was just like, at first, you know, I thought, wait, is this rear projection? Well, see, okay, so that's so what. What's so fascinating is in most of these movies that came out in the 40s and the 50s and 60s, anything that was shot with a car was on a soundstage and it was rear projection. Exactly. And so to see any film that uses real locations in 1950 and moreover than that is actually features the two actors driving in the car on a real street and you see what things really looked like. Yeah. So that's it starts that they pull into a town. And you're already like, whoa, that was like, that, that really was real. <laughs> that's, re- that's really real. And, and they're driving real fast too. Yes. And there's cars moving around. There's other track, there's traffic on the street. They didn't close it down for this. Plus they're taught. This is another thing that's really cool. And it's just something that movies should do more of and they don't, but this one does is they pull up and again, it's going to be like a heist of some sort. Mm-hmm. And uh, the actress Peggy Cummings is driving the car and the actor John Dahl, he gets out. And while you're parked almost in front, you hear her kind of mumbling and talking about like, come on, guy, move, move. Like she's, she's all well, nervous. There's a cop and, coming around the corner. Yeah. And she's like, all right, that's perfect. Just stay right there where you are. <laughs> yeah. And all that dialogue was improvised. Really? Yes. I didn't read that part of the the story. Then she goes up to the cop and it's like, what's going to happen next, you know? Yeah. So the only people that knew what was going on were uh, the three actors. So the cop and the two of them. The cop and the two of them and the people inside the bank. That, that's 
the only people who knew what was going on. They built this extra long car so they could fit the camera behind the seat. So when they pull up to the back, the camera actually moves over to the door when she gets out. And, and as, so the camera angle changes when she gets out to talk to the Which cop. probably just when you're watching it and absorbed, you don't realize that it's a cut without a cut. Exactly. And they had the camera. Uh, this is the description I read. They had the camera on a greased board. Hmm. And that's how it slides over to the side. They didn't like have a track or wow. <laughs> they just had the camera on a greased, plug, put some Vaseline on there. And it's this really smooth camera slide over to the door. And then when he comes back out and they get back in, the camera moves back over and then they drive out of there uh, into all this other traffic. And I don't know how long the shot is, maybe two or three minutes, but uh, it's, it's awesome. It, it, it's awesome. But the rest of the movie also, I felt like, was really well-directed. There's some great camera movement. Uh, the way the scenes are staged uh, is really effective. And I liked uh, the performances. I totally bought these. Uh, I bought the love story. I guess that's what it comes down to. Yeah. Now, I mean, mind you, like when you watch anything like this, I mean, it's a little bit cheesy, silly, uh, oh, melodramatic, sure, yes. you know, I mean, just. Oh, yeah, ways. yeah. Uh, what I did like, I mean, there's some stuff that's just funny, but like I like it, you kind of charmed by it was that clearly, and again, this is 1950, it's got to pass all sorts of codes to get on all know, sorts of codes. And you can see where he has to basically say, I want, I want to, I want to have sex with you, right? Yes, and so basically, they're driving and you know, it's a whole conversation about, shall we find a justice of the peace? <laughs> right. And suddenly, like, they go to this all-night justice of the peace guy. And get married. And it's really basically saying, because I want to have sex with you. And yes. it was just really fascinating um, because you ha you could never have a couple that are just going to have sex. And uh, right. of course, another thing that happened in these uh, movies, and this is, again, kind of what happens in Cast a Dark Shadow and why I didn't like the ending. The ending could have been awesome. However, there was this code. And I don't know what the British censors were like, but it was kind of following that same thing in any noir. If your characters are bad guys. They have to die. They have to die or they have to face the consequences. They cannot be allowed to get away and show that, that what they did was good. And that was one of the things that, like, you know, was so shocking about Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, they didn't right. get away with it at the end, but the idea that they were relishing and that they were these anti-heroes. And this movie, again, didn't quite hit that level. But No, uh, it doesn't. They're, they're a little more. Well, he's also against killing people. I mean, they play it up from his childhood, right? Like, he loves guns, but he doesn't like hurting he's, things. He's gun crazy. <laughs> he's gun crazy. Well, I mean, that's the other thing that's funny is we were talking about John Philip Law, expert marksman. Yeah. Both of them in this movie, expert marksman. And then uh, also I watched, uh, you know, Branded to Kill, expert marksman. Oh, my God. Let's So, uh, again, we're way, way long in this, but... Uh, uh, several weeks ago, several episodes ago, I, I, another collection that's on Criterion. Japanese noir. I could spend every day with Criterion. They never let me down. There's so much to watch. I've only sampled this Japanese noir, and there's definitely some more things that I'd like to take a look at. But I started to focus on this one director, Seijan Suzuki, because I was so 
captivated by the images that he put on the screen. Yes. And I mentioned this particular film, Branded to Kill, because it was the one where he, after the editing, he was fired from the studio because it was just <laughs> too much for them. And they would shoot these things in one week and it was very little editing because he just had what he right. wanted. And sometimes things don't even just fully make sense, but you go with it. It's not that it doesn't make sense. It's like there's pieces missing. And so you have to put a lot together and it's not always easy to put it together. And so it ends up being kind of impressionistic and it feels like a stylistic choice, not like something's missing because yeah. sometimes things just aren't done in dialogue and, or there's, and there's actually like hallucination sequences. And, and stuff. then this is the one with the guy with the chipmunk cheeks. <laughs> it's the one with the guy with the chipmunk cheeks, which are just so strange to look at. So you watch this film and I know that you kind of had some expectations set up, but like, were you prepared for this movie? I was not prepared for it. And I, th and I realized why is that after I watched it, I thought, I don't know how to describe this movie. The reason I wasn't totally prepared is because I don't think you know how to describe it either, <laughs> because I think it's it's kind of, uh, I, I mean, I've really never seen anything like it. That's the key. This is why I think it's uh, influential on a lot of filmmakers like Jim Jarmusch or whatever, is when you see a film like this, you walk away changed in how you view like the way movies are made because it's so different. Yes, Absolutely. It is so different. It has, you know, it's beautifully shot. It's beautifully constructed. The acting is fascinating, but it's really, I mean, it's very slippery trying to hold on to this movie while you're watching it. It's like, wait a minute, where are we? What is this? Oh, we're with this character. This is the movie that John Wick is based on. It's got to be. There's definitely some wiki-esque uh, stuff to it. <laughs> I don't, no, I, I don't mean based on just the idea of these ranked assassins. That's right, right. The society that we don't the know society, about. Yeah, this like weird society of assassins that are like competing for ranking. <laughs> uh, reminded me of John Wick a little bit. But yeah, this thing is just so oddly shaped and and paced and for some reason it works i it's yeah. and i can't i can't quite define how except that it has a vision and a voice and it's fully committed to what it's trying to do and say at watching it i was just thinking wow this this is this movie is something special and unique and odd and probably requires more than one viewing I mean, just his relationship with these women is so strange. It was more about the experience of the movie to me was more enjoyable or important than whatever the story was. Yeah. I mean, well, and the story is like really simple. It's just people trying to kill each other. Right? Well, like, this is so fascinating. But this studio, the studio's mantra was they put out two films a week. In theaters. Right. So they had, a, they had a slate of a hundred movies. So these movies had to be boom, 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 all joined. But that's a, that was a formula that worked with them for years. Yeah. So if you think about this guy, he was working, uh, Seishan Suzuki, under like a one week to film mantra. Right. And was just, and, and somehow managed to be an artist within that system. Whereas most of those films are probably totally forgettable and lost. Well, yeah, except for some of this guy, Seijun Suzuki's movies. Right, that's because, my point. He, yeah. he, managed to, he managed to, within that industrial framework, create something really kind of amazing. And if he, they couldn't do much editing, he, he was basically making the films in camera in single takes. 
Yeah, and then of course she has this one has some weird kind of goofy weird effects too. Oh yes, yes, yeah, the, yeah. There were some optical effects. Yeah, and that's why I mean I started with Youth of the Beast um, because that was in color, um, and his use of color is amazing, and in his uh, cinematography and just like his compositions. Then I watched this next. And then the third one I watched was Tokyo Drifter, which I think also was the weakest of the three that I watched. This one was probably my favorite, but just from a composition standpoint, Youth of the Beast has stuff that I like would show in film school to people. Yeah. I'm definitely going to check it out because this thing, Branded to Kill is just such a unique piece of work that it really demands to be seen i mean i think that's what's really the whole thing about criterion is yeah sure there's a lot of foreign films on there um and then they have a lot of you know the staple movies that again i try to catch up not not every week but there are certain films in my filmography that i should have seen but haven't and i still am chipping away at those and then sometimes you get these little collections that really get me a chance to dive into some movies that i probably would have not otherwise you know gone into and 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 now i'm like you know i'm going through this spaghetti western thing and i'm watching another one by this guy uh sergio carbucci right and this one definitely feels like recycled bits of duck you sucker death rides a horse and all of those and so i I, i'm gonna watch the whole thing because there are some interesting moments in it but it's like i'm starting to feel like i've seen all this before right yeah. Uh, there is also new on Criterion uh, Marx Brothers collection. Now, I'm not sure I'm going to go there. I mean, I've seen all those movies, but mostly when I was a kid, and I just I'm not a huge Marx Brothers guy. So I am a huge Marx Brothers guy. Do you think you can get like your daughter to watch them or something? Oh, they have the watched younger? them. Oh, okay. Um, but there's just, there's like two on here I hadn't seen before. Oh. So, so you're you going to watch that- those. So I'm going to watch those, but that's kind of cool that, uh, you know, some of these things are hard to find. And I think that's the thing like, uh, welcome to the terror dome, that Afrofuturism movie. It's, Mm. there's no other copy available. Right. Right. And I, that's why I forgive criteria. Like, I mean, these aren't their own personal, they're not all restored. They're just like, here, we want to show you this movie right now. And this is what we got. You can't access that movie anywhere else. It's not available anywhere else. There is no good transfer of it. This is the best copy available and the only place it's available. And that's what's cool about Criterion. I watched this uh, documentary that they had on there as one of their exclusives. Uh, that was the documentary from Peter Madak about his experience trying to make Ghost of the Noonday Sun with uh, Peter Sellers. And so this is called The Ghost of Peter Sellers. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, man, that is a fascinating story about a train wreck. And it's just insane. Like the story, like what happens on that whole thing, you just, it's almost like you have to watch it to believe that the stuff happened. Um, But then that caused me to watch a film that uh, we briefly touched on when I was with Bill, but we cut it out was uh, The Ruling Class by Peter Madak. Yes. And it was that film that got Peter Sellers interested in working with Madak in the first place. Uh, Well, that makes sense, actually. You could almost see Peter Sellers doing the lead role in that movie. Yeah, and and I was really kind of blown away by the ruling class just because the second half of the movie, which gets very dark, it really becomes this indictment of British upper class in a way like of just a high class society. I haven't seen such a scathing look at, at the ruling class since Rules of the Game. Right. And I thought that that would make an interesting pairing with another film that's on Criterion, uh, that Elaine May's A New Leaf, which was sort of an American oh, yes. version of looking at uh, 
the at high class society um and yet the dark part of a new leaf was edited out because she lost control of the movie yeah she lost control of the movie and that's you know that's we get the Snyder cut, but we don't get the May cut. We're never going to get the Snyder cut. That's which, by the way, at the end of the, the episode last week, I said that from now on, all extended cuts are going to be called Snyder cut. That's all. <laughs> so they, they Snyder cutted it. Uh, there will be, as far as we know, there's no remaining footage left from Elaine May's uh, New Leaf. And it was a yeah. three-hour cut that got cut down to 90 minutes. And to do that, I think that you'll notice, because I had to figure this out, there's some badly dubbed parts of A New Leaf. And I think that it was to fit in new dialogue that would help make it work. Right. Because in the long version, Walter Matthau, there's some murders committed so that he can make his ends meet. Right. But they had to cut that out. And that just shows you what a great movie it is at 90 minutes that it works, even though it's not anywhere what it was supposed to be. And yet the ruling class gets very dark. Can they, they convert him into what they think is the upstanding uh, high-class yes. British citizen, but he becomes Jack the Ripper, which is really <laughs> which is, genius. Which is ingenious, uh, yeah. So to me, they don't have this paired up, but that's another thing that's great is that you accidentally stumble upon themes within Criterion. And yeah, I would well, say like that, I was like the incredible marksman, like they could do a collection on that. So I would say that that if you wanted to have two different looks at, uh, at at kind of skewering high class society, ruling class and a new leaf are good ways to go. Great. Um, so you know, at a time when we don't have a lot of new movies to watch on the streaming services, Criterion Channel is such a great bargain for like a little hundred plus a year. It's it, no, it really is. <laughs> if you're not just looking to watch the latest superhero movie. <laughs> You're definitely not going to have that on it's there. It's definitely not not the crowd they're uh, playing to. But the good news is that they like these collections. They usually are on for several months. So like when they did the horror collection from the seventies that we talked about. Yep, that was on for like four or five months. Yeah, and the, some of the films stay around even if the yeah. Well, they might disappear, but then they get added to a different collection. Right, exactly. Like yeah, uh, like another one that I really like from the horror was the Long Weekend. But they, oh, all, yeah. they also put that on their Australian New Wave. Right. So it stayed for another, you know what I mean? So And it's still there now. Yeah. And like Days of Heaven is one of their staples. And it's and it'll show up in all kinds of different collections. And it may not actually fit the theme of some of the movies they're showing with Enio Morricone, but because they have it, they added it. Exactly, yeah. So when they do a Snyder Cut theme of extended versions, you're going to see like Until the End of the World and uh, all of these other long extended, which by the way, you know, I mean, it might take you years to go through all of those, but that would be a fascinating little collection. It would be a fascinating collection. Yeah. The Snyder Cut collection. Yeah. You know, Fanny and Alexander, the Snyder Cut, which by the way, I, I, one of the, when I still had Filmstruck, when Criterion was part yeah. of that, I watched the entire TV version of Fanny Alexander. Oh, you did. And I think we mentioned it way oh, at the yeah, beginning you did. of the show. And it is amazing. It's shocking that there was so much cut out, and yet the the, the tiny version of the movie, which is like two and a half hours, is actually is a, works. Is a classic. But this this four or six hour version, holy crap, is it good? And that's not available now, or is mm, it? I don't know. 
You'd have to, and I don't know. I mean, they always have some Bergman. Oh, it's on Criterion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm watching, they've got like always a good chunk of Bergman and Bergman's a guy that I haven't seen all this stuff. So right. I'm, I'm watching uh, Summer with Monica. Oh, okay. Haven't seen it. Well, this is one that's like a, oh my goodness. It's uh, it's interesting because it was, a. I haven't gotten to the scene yet, but it features like topless nudity. And this was like 1952 or something. Okay. And so- independent theaters in the united states like there were it became an art it became an art house sensation because you know you had audiences right. starving i guess for anything that wasn't uh the Hayes code and yeah we're gonna do a full whole episode on uh trial of the chicago seven coming up <laughs> well i would i i'm all for it man if you want to do one of those netflix parties oh of viewing oh we should we we should do a commentary track. Yeah, it'd be movie. hilarious. I'm all for that. That would be unique. Um, cause <laughs> okay. then, you know, because then either the, oh, cause, that- uh, maybe you'd like be like, okay, it's better than I thought, or nope, it sucks. No, it's going to be worse than I thought. Okay, so I'm all for that. You want to do that soon? <laughs> you know, we'll do that. Um, and also, hey, uh, you know, Andrew Perry, this guy, he sometimes uh, writes to us and gives us suggestions. He is the first person, uh, other than critics, to tell me that, hey, you should see this on another round movie. It's really good. And man, sir, you were not wrong. It really Okay, was don't, yep. Uh, we'll be talking about it next episode. Yep, and I know we already did talk about it, people, but we didn't talk about it much, and we're going to talk about it again. It was interesting perspective because uh, Bill had a unique perspective based on the fact that he is an educator. So, Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And anyways, and you'll have an interesting perspective on it because you're teal. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there we go. All right, people. All right. Thanks for listening. Yeah, stuffweseen.com, uh, feedback at stuffweseen.com. Hey, uh, you know, leave a comment and a reading. That's always uh, helpful and, uh, you know, Send us a message and tell us what you want us to talk about, because uh, we actually do listen to our listeners. So, all right, bye.